This episode of All Have Another Podcast is brought to you by PrepDish. PrepDish is a healthy subscription-based meal planning service. When you sign up, you'll receive an email every week with a grocery list and instructions for prepping your meals ahead of time. It's minimal work on the weekends, and you'll be prepped for the entire week. You'll save time and have amazingly delicious meals like smoky paprika chicken legs, a trio of roasted vegetables, and zucchini lasagna. And guys, the founder and CEO, who's also a chef and dietitian, Allison Schaff, she was on the podcast last week. She was episode 118, and I had so much fun talking to her and learning about her business and how she started it and her passion behind it. Allison is offering listeners of the show a free two-week trial. Check it out. Go to prepdish.com slash another and use the code another to get a free two-week trial. That's a no-brainer. Thank you, PrepDish, for supporting this podcast. And thanks, listeners, for supporting our sponsors. That's huge. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Well, welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you're listening to episode 119, and I am talking with steeplechaser Evan Jager. Evan runs for Nike with the Bowerman Track Club. He's a two-time Olympian and a silver medalist. He won a silver medal in the 2016 Olympics. We get to hear all about Evan's career, and I was super excited because Evan is the first of the Bowerman Track Club bros to be on the show. So this is exciting to have him on, and he was a real easy, fun guy to talk to. So I know you're going to enjoy this episode with Evan. If you're loving the show, I would really appreciate a rating and review. It is one of the best ways potential new listeners can find us. And I'm going to read you one of the most recent reviews. And if you leave a review, this could be you. Nicole. Hi, Nicole. Nicole just ran Boston, you guys. She says, another reason to look forward to Fridays. I listen to a few other podcasts, but honestly, Lindsay's is the only one that I'm anxiously waiting for the next episode. I really enjoy her interview conversation style and flow, and she always has interesting guests. I'm a runner and, of course, love when she talks to someone in the running community. And she's had some big names on her show, but I also really enjoy her episode with non-runners. Thanks, Lindsay. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Nicole, so much for supporting the podcast and for leaving that review. I know... It took time out of your day, and I appreciate it so much. If you guys are looking for more content from me, you can find it on my Patreon page, patreon.com slash lindsayhine. When you support the show in that way, you get bonus episodes. All right, guys, you can find me on Instagram. That's my favorite place on social media, like the rest of the world, to hang out. And my Instagram is lindsayhine626. All right. I hope you guys are enjoying spring as much as I am. I'm just loving this weather so much. I feel like I'm on a some sort of drug because the weather has changed my perspective so much. I'm just such a happier person. So I uh, hope you're outside enjoying a run or doing something fun like this that while you listen to this episode. Enjoy my conversation with Evan. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Evan Jager, and I'm so happy to have you on the show, Evan. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm adding to my collection of Bowerman Track Club athletes on the podcast. Who all have you interviewed so far? So we've had Colleen, Courtney, Shelby, Emily, and Shalane. I think that's all of them. So you're the oh, first wow. Bowerman dude on the show. <laughs> Bowerman bro. You're oh, do you guys call yourselves the Bowerman, the Bowerman bros? The Bowerman bros. Is that what you do? Is that what you call yourselves? <laughs> no, not not no. No, no, not really. It's just, it's just like our little joke of a spinoff. 
I know the girls call themselves the Bowerman Babes. So are, you guys are just kind yeah. of like making a thing of it. You're not. You don't really call yourself Bowerman Bros. No, I don't think we would ever like publicly call ourselves the Bowerman Bros. But we kind of just joke about it. You should start the hashtag. <laughs> That'd be probably a good thing to do with the the Bowerman Track Club Instagram. Use the anytime the girls are in a post. Bowerman Bays, and anytime the guys are in a post, the Bowerman Bros. You get it going. Okay, well, Evan, let's talk about your career, and let's talk about running and where where you came from to get to where you are. So, in my research, I can't believe I did not know this before I was interviewing you, that you actually went to the University of Wisconsin and followed the famous Jerry Schumacher to train with him. And you, you, you quit school early to go follow him and become a pro when you were like a baby. Yeah. Yeah. I was 19 years old. 19. Um, I went to, yeah, I, I went to school. Uh, I decided on Wisconsin, um, one, because it was, it was a great program with a lot of, uh, really good history and tradition, um, on the distance running side. And, uh, more importantly, um, I felt like, Jerry was going to be the right coach for me. Um, he just had a way of uh, getting me really excited to become a better athlete. And um, yeah, I, I had a really good connection with Jerry. So um, that was the kind of the biggest selling point in me going to Wisconsin. And um, yeah, he told us at the end of my freshman year that he was going to be leaving the university and moving out to Portland to coach a smaller group of, uh, professionals, um, most of whom had, had run for him at Wisconsin. And, uh, he asked me to, uh, kind of join him. Um, and at that point that was a dream come true. So I kind of took a while to think it over and talk, talk about it with my family and friends and Jerry and, um, decided that I thought that moving out to Portland and, um, foregoing four, four years of collegiate running was going to be the best move for my like future development as a runner. So yeah, 19 and moved across the country and dropped, not dropped out of school, but stopped running collegiately and turned pro. Yeah. Because you continued your education out there. Just, was it like an online program or something? No, I was, I was going on campus and taking classes at Portland state, um, for they were, they were on like trimesters or the quarter system. So I would, uh, go into class uh, in the fall and the winter terms. And then in the spring, we would be traveling to either altitude or races, um, throughout the country. So I couldn't really go to class. So, I would typically take the the spring term off, and so for for a while I was just doing uh, fall and winter classes. So how long did it I take graduated. you to graduate? Yeah, <laughs> it took a while. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a hard way to do it. Uh, it just yeah, it just takes so much longer. So um, I took the first year of living in Portland off of school just to kind of um, get adjusted to. Uh, a different lifestyle, um, being like that far, uh, away from home. And I just wanted to make sure I, I like had the, 
the hang of running professionally before I, I threw school in the mix as well. So I took that first year off and then, um, it took, I think I've finally graduated, uh, spring of 2015. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Because it seems like, uh, middle-class America or whatever we call ourselves, you, you just go to college and that's what you do and you graduate and, and that's the way you're supposed to do things. And oftentimes I've looked back at my life and thought, you know, I actually don't think I was really ready for college at the age of 18. I mean, mm. I, I know you moved on and took a year off for different reasons, um, mm-hmm. but this is like just proof that other ways work and that there's not one solution to, you know, getting through college. Uh, but I can imagine mm-hmm. going on as a professional athlete. I mean, you think about your life now, now you've been graduated for three years. Like what if you were still studying? Wouldn't that, doesn't that sound terrible? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, finally being, I, I looked forward to being done with college probably, the exact moment that I signed my national letter of intent to, to go to Wisconsin. I just, (laughs) I I had like in that moment, it kind of solidified for me that like I was, I was going to be a runner and being a runner was what I was going to concentrate most on, uh, until I couldn't do it anymore. And definitely, um, I think like you, when I was younger, I just, I didn't appreciate school as much as I did, um, in the later years of, of going to college. And I, I just kind of looked at it as an inconvenience to my running as opposed to like an opportunity to learn. And, um, I, I just dreaded going to class for quite a few years until I started maturing and I, I finally started appreciating maybe it was, the schooling, maybe it was just the classes that I was taking, but I was having a lot more fun, uh, going to school and taking these classes and learning. But I, in in one sense, like I like hated school when I was younger, but in the other sense, I know that I would not have enjoyed going back to school, um, and starting from ground zero when I was done running. So I knew it was something I needed to finish, um, as soon as I could. And yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was cool. My last couple of years, I started taking some classes that I was way more interested in and I, re- I really started enjoying it. What, what's your degree in? Uh, exercise, um, physical activity and exercise, kind of like a, a dumbed down version of kinesiology Oh, okay. is how I describe it. I guess my biggest question is I'm a parent and I mean, my kids are really little, they're not anywhere near college age, but was that your parents' main concern? Like, that's fine if you want to go do that and you want to go run professionally and follow Jerry, but, like, we really want you to go ahead and finish up your college career as well. Yeah, for sure. When I when I brought up the, like, the option of moving out to Portland to my parents, my dad was, like, he had gotten, like, really, really into my running in high school. And um, I, the the way I remember the conversation was he was, like, completely for it had no reservations um and my mom was like she was completely for it and she was like just as long as you finish your school like yeah that that's, sounds like an incredible opportunity so that was like finishing school and living really far away from my parents was their really only concerns with uh the decision and they were 
nothing but supportive during the whole process. And that made it really easy, obviously. Yeah. Okay. So you run for Nike and I mean, you were really one of the very first Bowerman Track Club crew then, right? Because you, you went when Jerry went and when this all, this whole thing started. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, it was, uh, so the original group was, uh, Matt Tegenkamp, Chris Selinski, Simon Byru, Tim Nelson, Jonathan Riley and myself and um all those other guys had um all the the other guys except for Jonathan Riley had run at Wisconsin graduated from Wisconsin and had stayed in Madison for a couple years to um to run professionally under Jerry and then Jonathan Riley ran and graduated from Stanford and um joined the group while they were still in Madison. Um, so all of us, uh, moved out to Portland and I was actually one of the first guys to move out there because, um, Matt taking camp, uh, he owned a house in Madison and I think he needed to, um, he needed to sell his house before he was ready to move out to Portland. Same with Jerry Selinski took a couple months, um, a couple more months than I did to move out to Portland. So for a little while, it was just uh, Simon, Tim, and uh, Jonathan might have moved out a little bit after us as well. So there was just like three of us at the start, and then eventually everyone started trickling in. Uh, so yeah, it was <laughs> it was um, it was an experience for sure. Um, not having like my parents, um, not really having like, you know, like the dorms at Wisconsin or, uh, the guys on the team from Wisconsin that were all my age. Um, I think Simon was, he was probably five years older than me. Um, so I was, I was definitely the baby, uh, out there for a little while. And it took like about a month for me to really kind of settle down and get comfortable being out there on my own. Um, but, uh, as soon as, we started meeting up for workouts and stuff. Uh, I was, I like didn't really have any homesickness or anything. Uh, I, I knew that I had made the right decision and, um, I was just ready to go to work and, uh, try to get as fit as I could. Yeah. Because you're from Illinois. So when you were at the university of Wisconsin, you were pretty close to home. Yeah, it's a it's a two hour drive from my parents' house to Madison. So oh, yeah, really yeah. close. You're right there. Okay, so wh- what is that like now? How many athletes are with the with the group now? Oh my gosh, um, I I actually don't even know off the top of my head. I th- I want to say it's uh, I think we have nine men and nine women, so it'd be eighteen. Okay. Um, some something right around there. Um, and so yeah, the group has definitely it's gotten way bigger than what it was at the start. Yeah. Okay. So walk me through, I mean, you were like a 1500 meter guy, really, right? Uh, sort of. Um, I, I ran the 1500 at Wisconsin, I think mainly because I missed most of the fall, uh, with an Achilles injury and I wasn't, I wasn't able to put in the necessary base work to compete in in the 3k indoors or the 5k outdoors so um kind of by default i had to run the 1500 but 
even my first year at Wisconsin, Jerry and I had the conversation and he told me, he's like, you're going to be a 5k guy. Um, you're not quite fast enough for the 15. And I think, uh, the 5k is your sweet spot of a distance. So, um, I, I always knew that I was going to move up in distance. Um, it was just when I could kind of handle the training to be able to do so. Well, and we're going to get to breaking some barriers here, but you have a 5K PR of 1302. That's really fast. <laughs> yeah, that was from a long time ago, too, unfortunately. <laughs> this is from 2013, I think. So it's five years old now. Do you ever Almost. have the desire? I mean, obviously, your focus is the steeplechase right now in your life, but do you ever have the desire to go yeah. back and break 13? Of course. Yeah, I, th- I think about it. Um, I, I wish, I mean, I would love to do it, uh, every single year, take a crack at it. But, um, I, I think I have too much pride in the steeple to, uh, kind of just throw that aside. And, um, like I, I would have to chase like a fast time in the 5k at probably at towards the end of the year. Um, and I would most likely be giving up the opportunity to compete for the, the diamond league title in the steeplechase to be able to just run a fast time. And, um, it, it's, it's difficult because I'm always, I'm still chasing fast times in the steeple as well. So it's, you just kind of have to make a decision as to which event you want to go for. Um, and I guess I just haven't had the opportunity to like give the 5k my, my full focus in training and, um, at the right time of the year to run a fast time. So let's talk about the decision to make steeplechase your thing. You, so shortly after you went pro, you had a very significant ankle injury. Uh, yeah, my, one of the bones really close to the ankle in my foot, um, the navicular bone, I had a stress fracture, it happened at U.S. Championships, actually, in the 1500, and uh, it cracked, and then I had to get surgery, and I basically didn't run for, like, six months. So, yeah, it was, that, was, that was a very difficult time in my career, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's a really long time. I mean, and typically, when you hear someone, oh, I have a stress fracture, and they take, you know, like, eight weeks off or something like that, and and usually you're talking to like a friend who's a runner who's trying to run like a 3:30 marathon or whatever. But when you're talking about this is my le- this is my career, and you mm-hmm. don't run for six months, and you're watching your teammates train, um, and at that time, so 2010, what were you like 20, 22? You were I was young. 21. Yeah. 21. Yeah. So I mean, I think that at even thir- you know, even 28 or 31 your perspective on things like that, uh, is a little bit different. So at that young of an age, like going through that, how did you, how'd you get through that? It was tough. Um, yeah, it was, it was the first time I had had a, well, I guess I had an, an, a similar injury, but that was freshman year of high school and I, I still didn't really know anything about running. So, uh, first time, I guess, since I had gotten really serious about running that I had a significant injury. And yeah, it, I mean, it felt like the end of the <laughs> end of the world at the time. Yeah. Um, I I would drive into practice every day with Simon, uh, who I was living with at the time. And um, he would 
go out uh, outside and go for a run uh, with with all the guys, and I would kind of show up at the same time as him, and I would just stay inside and uh, stationary bike for as hard as I could, basically for an hour every single day. And um, there was, I mean, gosh, there was so many moments where you're just by yourself for so long, like struggling, feeling like crap, like not all you want to do is, is run. Cause that's like, that's one, it's my job. And two, it's just what I love to do. So that's really hard. And at the same time, I go through these periods where I would question whether or not I was ever going to get back to being the same athlete that I was. I was like, Oh, hopefully like, my foot heals like it's it's been like three four months and my foot is it's still sore like I don't know if I'm ever gonna be able to run the same again like is my stride gonna change like so there's a lot of a lot of doubt going through your head at that time and on one hand it sucked like seeing my teammates being able to train every day and knowing that's what I wanted to do but on the other hand they were all such great guys that um they they helped me get through that time. And Simon was really helpful, uh, especially because we were living together and he just kind of like calmed me down whenever I got worked up and um, just kind of let me know, use his, his um, kind of wisdom. And he would just tell me like, things are going to be okay. You're going to heal and you'll be out running again. And the biggest thing was just having perspective that, uh, I didn't want to rush this injury because I, I was still very young. And if if I did everything right and uh, allowed my body to heal properly, I was going to hopefully be able to have a very long career. And um, that was one of the things that kind of got me through it was uh, just knowing, go through this really tough time right now and it's going to make everything better on the other side. And you if you do things right now, you can continue to have a very long, successful career. So do you think that if something like that were to happen to you today, your perspective, like at time of injury would be different? Um, I don't know. (laughs) It's interesting because now I'm, I'm to the point where I am starting to get a little older. So I could see myself, it would be different, like from when I was 21 like being immature and thinking it's the end of the world to where if it happened when I was 25 I think I would have maybe even a little more patience than I would right now because I was still like on the younger side Mm -hmm. of things but now if it happened I would probably go back to worrying (laughs) thinking oh shoot like I hope this doesn't end my career um I I hope like I would be able to like have the same fitness coming out of the injury. I think I would still have, have those thoughts, but yeah, I think after a short period of time, I would, I would be able to calm myself down and, um, put my, my mental energy into, into cross training as opposed to just worrying about things. And yeah, I, I think I would be able to handle it a little bit better at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, you competed in the 2012-2016 Olympics. And so that at this point, you're like, okay, 2020 is coming up. Well, then would mm-hmm. I have a shot at 2024, depending on how old <laughs> I am? So, yeah, I totally see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, 
So, so you're being humble about the steeplechase, though, because for those listening, they probably know this, but you are the American record holder uh, with a time of eight minutes, 45, 0.45. So let's talk about that because that's a really big deal. Just like we were talking about with the 5K breaking 13, breaking eight minutes in the 3,000 steeplechase is a big deal. And you had it like you were there you were well (laughs) on your way to breaking it and yeah you had a little fall um and that was at the diamond league race so tell Mm -hmm. tell us about the that experience uh that was one of the most like incredible and worst experiences of my life (laughs) (laughs) um it was it was yeah very interesting because um training that entire year had gone really well I had run a couple of really good races leading up to that race in Paris. Um, and I just, I could just tell I was on the top of my game going into that race. And, um, my mentality going in was, uh, I definitely wasn't like the top guy on the scene. I was like number two or three or four going into that race. And I was going up against, um, my main competition that day was uh, was a Kenyan, Jarius Birech, who had just been dominating the steeple for the the past two years. And um, I think he had won every single Diamond League race the prior year, and he might have been undefeated um, going into that race in 2015. And so I, I knew I had, like, he was some big competition, and... Um, I just went into that race, uh, thinking just run, like, don't think about anything, just stay right on him. You can win this race if, um, if you just stay there and you run as, as well as you can. And I don't know why, like, I just had that, like this switch in, in my brain where I just told myself you can win this race, run like you can win this race. And we went out there and I went out way faster through the first 2K um, than I had in any other steeple. Uh, and I was still like, I, I was noticing through four laps, through five laps, that every single time we would go over hurdle or the water jump, I would kind of edge, edge back up on Jarius. Uh, and he was in front of me. I was in second and I was just matching every single move. And it just kind of felt like effortless to me. And I felt like every time we went over a hurdle or, or a water jump, he was getting a little more tired. And I was kind of just waiting, waiting, waiting for the move to be made. And I was getting more and more antsy. And eventually, um, just before two laps to go, we go over that, that water jump and, um, he kind of struggled a little bit and I had a really good water jump and I just popped out of the water pit and immediately passed him. And I was feeling so good at that point And I could tell he was a little tired. Um, I just told myself, I was like, all right, let's, let's make him hurt. I'm going to try to make these last two laps hurt as, as bad as I can. And, uh, I just started, kind of subtly increasing the pace like every hundred meters basically uh until i had i looked up at the the jumbotron the big screen 
in the stadium and I saw that I had like a three to five meter gap on him with like 300 meters to go. And I just got this big hit of adrenaline and I was definitely getting tired. But, um, when you get a, like when you're doing something very unexpected, unexpected, um, you just get like overwhelmed with this adrenaline and it kind of pushes you to the finish line. And, uh, came up to the water jump and, um, this was the last water jump. And I remember going over landing in the water pit and just feeling like the track had sucked like every little bit of energy out of me and just stole it. But I, I knew I had to keep running. And I, so I like got through that and at a hundred meters to go, I, I looked at the clock and I, I saw like 741 or something like that. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to crush eight minutes. This is crazy. And so I got another hit of adrenaline and I, I like start kicking even harder and I'm, I'm running pretty fast at this point. And, um, but you just, that adrenaline is just kind of overpowering you. And I come up to the final barrier and I knew I was tired and I've, I was going in, I was like, okay, focus on this. And then you can sprint as hard as you can. And I put everything I had, I promised everything I had into getting over that barrier. And my legs were just so tired. I just barely clipped the barrier with my trail leg. And I, I didn't have enough energy to keep myself up. And I tried. And I, when I landed, I tried to get my next leg up and take another step, but it just dragged on the ground and I fell and my initial reaction was dang it get up you might still be able to break it if you sprint in as hard as you can so I, d- I didn't even think about it I just popped back up and started running as hard as I could and uh Birach had already passed me but at that point I didn't even care I was just so focused on trying to break eight uh and I remember chasing after Birach and he crosses the finish line and the clock reads 7.58 and I keep counting. I'm like 59, eight flat. And then I cross and I, I didn't even have to look at the scoreboard to know that I hadn't broken eight. And I just, I was so pissed because I knew I had such a major opportunity just in my hands I just had to get to the finish line and I just made just the tiniest tiniest little mistake and it it cost me and like probably three or four seconds um and unfortunately those three or four seconds were the difference between breaking a, a major time barrier a huge accomplishment in the sport and the event and being on the wrong side of that and it was crushing for sure i remember just walking over to to the barrier slamming my hands on it and um just being so incredibly mad at myself and uh all the guys all the all the kenyans came over and um they consoled me and i i think they genuinely felt really sorry for me that i got so close and couldn't get it done um and yeah that was that was definitely a tough moment in my career you know I was actually gonna bring that up 
when I watched the video, seeing all those guys come up to you and it really did look genuine. Like they all, I mean that you could tell they were like, man, that, you know, they wanted to be there for you because they knew yeah. how important that was. Yeah. Yeah. It was tough. I think a couple of the guys came over and, um, and I think because one or two of them were already consoling me, they, they thought that I had broken eight minutes oh. and they came over to congratulate me and oh. they're like, did you do it? Did you do it? And oh. I was like, no, I just missed it. And I could see on their faces just the disappointment. And, um, I mean, it's, it's nothing more than, than what I was feeling, but it just kind of added to the moment of just utter disappointment in myself. Yeah, that's kind of crazy because you're, I talk about this a lot on the podcast, like when you're a professional athlete trying to, you know, like win a gold medal or whatever you're trying to do, the win is oftentimes, well, always almost more important than the time. But at that moment in your career, when you had that perfect race, everything, the Mm -hmm. stars aligned, breaking eight minutes was for you that day. And so that was the most important thing because at what point did it turn from winning to breaking eight minutes is is more important um it was I think it was just the last lap um I I took over the lead like I I was only focused on going into that race I just wanted to compete the best that I could see if I could hang with Beeratch as long as possible and possibly get the win. That that was all I was thinking of. And as soon as I took the lead, I I still wasn't thinking about it at that point until I I realized going into a lap to go, I was still feeling like I had a little something left, and I I felt like I had the opportunity to to beat Beeratch, and I felt like he was getting a little tired, and. With a lap to go, I, I looked at the clock and I saw um, 6.56 or something like that. And I thought to myself, and, th- and that's when a, a switch went on in my head. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like if you just if you run a 64 or the 63, which is nothing, it's like just race pace, basically. Mm-hmm. If Like I didn't have to pick the pace up at all and I was going to be able to break eight. And that's, that's when the switch went off and, um, kind of got a little excited and started, uh, started kicking a little bit, I guess, um, to kind of secure that sub eight. And, and then obviously definitely again with a hundred to go, when I looked at the clock, I, I saw that I was still way under pace and, um, definitely at that point, like all I was thinking about was breaking eight. So um, yeah, it was, I mean, it probably would have benefited me to, to not think about time and to only think about securing the win. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you don't get like, I, I still haven't had an opportunity like that where I've been in a race with a lap to go pretty much under at or under eight minute pace. So I, I knew how special breaking eight was, um, especially for a non-African. There's never been an African born, a non-African born athlete to, to break eight. So, I mean, it's a major goal of mine for my career. And, uh, I knew how special that would have been that 
kind of in that moment, breaking eight would have even been more special than winning that race. So, yeah, I kind of let the emotions get to me, I guess. Yeah, well, it's kind of like a career definer. And you, I mean, you say it was like the hardest but happiest day because you also, I mean, you broke your own American record by six seconds that day. So you still had a phenomenal day, but it's just like letting that go, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was... Um, to be honest, the American record wasn't, I I wasn't even really happy about it. Um, (laughs) uh, I was, I think walking away from that race, what I was more happy and, and proud of was the fact that I had actually kind of, even though I didn't actually run that time, I had, I had proved to myself that running that time was possible and I had the fitness to be able to run under eight minutes. And, uh, I ran, I I ran in a way that, um, that I was, I was proud of, you know, I didn't just kind of sit on Biresh the whole time and let him drag me to a fast time. I, uh, kind of took the race in my own hands and, um, made the aggressive move and, uh, made the decision to, to really try and break him and, um, and get the win. And that was what I was proud of. I love that sentiment. I was, I just interviewed Ben True on this podcast and we were having the same conversation on the day that he, I think you were in the, you were in the race. Uh, he was, he was setting himself up to break 13 minutes and he ended up not breaking 13 minutes because somebody ran a really slow lap and you, you probably know what race I'm talking about, right? I do 2014 Peyton Jordan 5k. Yes. Yeah. And he talked about that experience and then coming out of it saying like now, you know, he kind of had the mentality then like he's, he's racing for the win then, but it was kind of like more out of fear. Like when that lap slowed down, he's like, well, I better slow down with everybody so that then I can really outkick everybody on the last lap. But had he really like gave an, gave his all like in that slow lap, he was pretty sure there's no way I wouldn't have yeah. broke 13 minutes that day. Yeah. And so it's kind of like a growing process, even though you're a professional athlete, like you're still learning these these things along the way with these big races and these big defining moments in your career. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. Um, when, when you're kind of at this level, the, um, kind of the, the little, um, I guess nuggets of information or the, the things that kind of make you incrementally better are, are so hard to, to get. So, um, like, Obviously, I was in really, really good shape the day of of Paris, and I was everything was firing on all cylinders. But if I had not had the confidence to to make that move and push from that far out, I might not have even had the opportunity to break it. And so, yeah, like sometimes it, it takes a long time to to break through and and kind of get to that next next little learning curve or next little, uh, race experience that's going to make you a better athlete. And those opportunities can be so few and far between sometimes that sometimes you, you don't really get there unless you try something different. And I mean, 
moments like that are are so special not not just for the performance on paper or like how how things like what the finishing time was or what the place was but uh it's almost more important for setting yourself up for the future it it kind of reminds me of when courtney got a medal in london Mm -hmm. just like that perfect special day where everything was working out you know yeah exactly All right, you guys, real quick, before we continue this conversation with Evan, I want to thank Lily Trotters for supporting this episode of the podcast. Finally, a stylish, high-performance compression sock for women. Lily Trotters compression socks are marathon-strong and designer-inspired. You get fit, comfort, and style, whether you're running a marathon or a mile. Made in the USA, Lily Trotters are perfect for the runner, traveler, or expectant mom, you name it. Treat yourself and use the code ANOTHER for a 25% discount on your order. Just go to lilytrotters.com. That's L-I-L-Y-T-R-O-T-T-E-R-S. Links to that will be in the show notes. Thank you, Lily Trotters, for supporting this episode of the podcast. Thank you, listeners, for supporting our sponsors. All right, you guys, let's go ahead and continue my conversation with Evan Jager. In 2012, you got uh, sixth place in, in London at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And then in 2016, you got yourself a silver medal in Rio. Mm-hmm. So what What was, I mean, obviously there's four years of training and experience <laughs> there. Yeah. What, what was the difference? Like what, what are the jumps that, that have been made in those four years? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, definitely the, the biggest jump was was just experience. 2012 was my, it was my first year running the steeple. So I was very much still learning the event at the time that I ran in the Olympics. So I, I hadn't run too many races where probably any races actually, where I was running on the rail and I had guys completely surrounding me going over barriers. Um, so yeah, the Olympics was like the first time that that had happened. Most of my first two races were, were paced. So they were completely strung out. I had no one on either side of me pretty much the entire race and you're running way more free. And, um, in the steeple, especially that's, it's makes such a difference. And then the, the Olympic trials, um, I, I think I was just on the outside the entire time and, until the race picked up and then it strung out and then I was kind of single file. So, um, yeah, just kind of getting used to being in a pack was, was a huge learning curve. Um, but also, you know, just getting older and getting stronger and improving my hurdling technique and improving my speed that kind of just happened naturally with having, three, four consecutive years of healthy running in my legs, you know? Um, so that's, that was definitely the biggest physical difference from London to Rio. But, um, I would say an even bigger difference was, uh, like a better example is, uh, the difference between the year before Rio uh, the 2015 world championships in Beijing and the Olympics in 2016. Um, so between those two years, I would say my fitness probably didn't change 
at all. I was probably in the same general fitness um, both years and had two completely different results. 2015 um, in Beijing, I was... I went into that race having run um, that race in Paris where I fell about five or six weeks earlier. And up until Paris, I was kind of, I was kind of looked at as like, um, like an outside shot for a medal, I guess. Um, I was probably like the fourth or fifth best guy on paper. And then all of a sudden I, I run this incredible race and, and almost win Paris and almost run 756 or 757 and all of a sudden in the span of eight minutes I go from being like an outside shot to a medal favorite potentially gold medal favorite and that was a a ton of pressure that I don't think I was necessarily ready for going into the world championships and I ran I, I ran in a way that I thought was best for me to medal, but um, I was kind of doing it because I felt like I needed to medal at this point because I had run such a good race and I was in such good shape that it would be a letdown if I didn't medal. So uh, I had a ton of pressure and I carried that with me into the race and I was never able to let myself fully relax in the race. And I was constantly pressing, trying to uh, get to the lead and trying to push. And I was being um, held off uh, from getting the lead. And every time I tried to get to the lead, the guy next to me would kind of pick his pace up and, and hold me off. So I did that like five or six different times. And by the time we got to the last lap, I was just completely toast and i i ended up finishing sixth i think and so i was incredibly disappointed so going into 2016 i was still probably just as fit i was really strong really fast and i trained that entire year with the goal of of meddling because um I, I mean obviously i was i've i've been close and i i mean everyone wants to meddle um, but also cause I wanted a little bit of redemption for the year before. And so I trained so intently every single day with that in mind. And, uh, I remember it was about two or three, I think it was two weeks before the Olympics, before my race. Um, my coach Pascal had obviously seen this in me all year, this intensity and, um, kind of just let it slide all year and then we get to two weeks before my race and he's like hey he sat me down just him and I and he's like hey like I know you really want a medal um I know you're pissed about last year and you you kind of want to make up for that um and this is obviously a huge goal of yours but I want you to go into this race not thinking about the medal at all. Just do everything you can leading up to the race and um, everything you can during the race to give yourself the best opportunity to medal. And if you run a really good race and you have a good day and you medal, that's incredible. But if you 
are doing your best and you run your best race in order to medal and you have a bad day, you, you have to be okay with that. And that was the biggest, I think that was the biggest thing that helped me going into Rio. Um, I had trained with this, the weight of this medal on me for an entire year. And then the two weeks prior, I just completely let it go and told myself, as long as you run your best race and you give yourself the best opportunity to medal, um, and you do your best, that's, that's all that matters. And it truly was how I felt. Uh, I went into the race and I was completely calm. It was probably the most calm I've ever been in a high, uh, like a, a really big race like that, whether it was USA's or a diamond league or a championship. Um, I was just completely calm. And I remember feeling like at points I was, I was the only one out on the track and it, like, I didn't even care about any of the athletes around me. And, um, yeah, I just kind of ran free and I got myself to a lap to go and, um, pretty much had, <laughs> had a medal in, in my hand. And, um, I, I didn't really start racing for a medal until the last lap. Um, and we had already had like a 30 or 40 meter lead on everyone else. So, um, it was, that was probably the biggest learning lesson I've, I've ever had in the sport. What a wise coach. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. Um, so thankful for that, that moment. And it was, it was probably like a two, three minute conversation, but, um, yeah, it, I think it, I honestly feel like it made all the difference. So once you got to the point in the race where you were actually racing for the medal at that point, were you like, Oh shit, I better not fall on this last barrier. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was, there was definitely part of me that was thinking about, um, the last two barriers thinking, okay, just, you just have to get over this cleanly and you have a medal. And, um, probably up until that point, I was still just in the normal rhythm of the race. And I wasn't thinking about kind of the barrier. I wasn't overthinking the barriers and, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I definitely thought about it. Uh, but I was also at the same time, like, like I had seen how big of a gap we had on everyone else. And I knew there was, there was pretty much no way I, I wasn't going to get a medal. So, uh, that was a pretty, that was a pretty exciting, um, not exciting, but a very enjoyable, fun last lap for me. Yeah. Because I, I have to wonder, like after the, you know, eight minute catastrophe, did you have like, uh, what's it called? Like post race freak out where you're just like, ah, I gotta like get move through this so that I don't worry about this in coming races. Cause that could really screw with your head. Yeah. Um, I kind of, I didn't really look at it, uh, as, um, like a, Oh shoot. Like, I hope I don't fall on this last barrier. It was, it was more like, okay, make sure you focus to get over this. Uh, so I, I guess I kind of turned it into a little more of a positive than a negative. Cause I, I definitely think that it could have been very, very negative to 
think of that last barrier as like, oh my gosh, like, I don't want to do this. Like, please, like, I really hope I get over this instead of like, okay, like make sure you have good form and you're strong over the barrier and then you can kick it in. So I don't know. I think there's two different ways you can spin it. So is the silver medal in Rio, is that one of the, is that the highest moment in your career so far you think? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Um, Yeah, it'd be that. Um, And then uh, there's a couple, couple more in there. Uh, I don't know if like highest and most memorable kind of are, I know are two different things, but, um, I've got a couple really memorable races that I cherish as well. What are those? Um, uh, the first one is, was my, my first Olympic trials win, uh, in 2012. Um, kind of because it was a new event for me. Uh, there was still a little, uh, insecurity, not insecurity, but, um, a little unknown, uh, in the event, uh, going into the trials. Like I, I had raced a couple good races and felt pretty good in the steeple, but I had never been in a high pressure situation. So there was definitely that unknown of how I was going to handle that. And so, um, coming away victorious was kind of, it was, it was a very cool moment for me. Um, but also more importantly, it was, uh, crossing that finish line and being able to call myself an Olympian for the first time, um, was, I mean, it was a life, not a lifelong goal, but, uh, it was a goal as for as, as long as I had been running. So, um, that was a very, very special moment for me. What was it that, made Jerry decide Evan's going to be a steeplechaser. I mean, was that something you guys had talked about before, like even when you were at Wisconsin? No, never, never talked about it at Wisconsin. Um, I think Pascal, uh, uh, Jerry and Pascal both, both coach us. And um, Pascal is uh, a former, he was an Olympian in the steeplechase uh, in Athens or not, sorry, not Athens, Sydney. Um, and so I think Pascal being a steepler was, had part of it. He, he kind of like, he was probably always thinking about this, the steeple and who could steeple, who would be a good steepler. And, uh, he had the background. And so I think there was probably a little conversation between the two of them, that was mostly based around, um, kind of just my, my attributes as a runner, uh, pretty tall, had long legs. And, um, especially when I was younger, I had this really, really bouncy stride and I was, I could jump pretty high and, uh, I was relatively athletic for, for a runner and, uh, pretty flexible. And I think they kind of just saw all these individual attributes and they thought that there was potential, um, uh, for the steeple to be a really good event for me. And, um, actually my, one of my high school coaches, um, when I was a senior in high school, 
told me that I should uh, give the steeple a try at some point in college because um, like I was, I was a good distance runner and I just also messing around at practice one day, high jumped like five ten, and he thought that that was like really unique for a distance runner. So he was like, dude, like when you go to college, you should give the steeple thing a try. So it was kind of always in the back of my head. And, um, I don't, I don't know. Timing just kind of worked out perfectly where, um, all three of us kind of came together at the same time and were like, Hey, what about, what about the steeple? And the idea kind of popped up and just, we gave the hurdling a try and it, I just took very naturally to it. So kind of just went from there. So you started in 2012 and they were like, let's get this uh, rolling so that you can uh, go ahead and compete in the Olympic trials real quick. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think, I think that was part of it. Um, Obviously making the Olympic team is it's, I mean, it's a very, very big, big deal. um, Especially in track and field. And um, I think we went in, finished like the 2011 season um, it might have actually come up like at some point during the 2011 season uh, and we're just kind of like we'll give hurdling a try in the fall and if it goes well we'll we'll progress and see where see where it goes and yeah it just kept getting better and better and better and um, yeah I just stuck with it yeah because had you not moved on to steeplechase um what event would you have gone to the trials in um probably the 5k okay which was that was a very that was a hard team to make um it was uh i think it was um bernard legat galen rupp and my teammate uh lopez lamong who i believe ran 1304 four earlier that year or 1307 or something like that um and then my my other teammate andrew bumbleow was fourth so i would have definitely been duking it out between two of my teammates and two other guys and yeah that was, that was a hard team to make for sure that sounds stressful oh, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> So are you seeing that steeplechase is growing in popularity and is it getting like, is the field getting tougher as it grows? Oh yeah. The field. Yeah. It's, I feel like it's gotten tougher every single year that I've done it. Um, which is cool. Um, it's, it's fun like to kind of be a part of the resurgence of the steeple in the U S uh, cause we have some great history in the steeple, um, on the international scene, but we just had this, this decade or two time period where, um, we really only had one or two guys, um, pretty much like one guy each year that was, that was good. So, uh, now we've got, I mean, I think 2015 was, was the first year ever that the U S had, three men and three women in the final at the world championships. And, um, that was, I mean, definitely cool to be a part of. Yeah, that's really cool. So obviously the barriers, (laughs) 
that's the difference here. Um, from yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> from racing like the 3K to the 3,000 3, uh, steeple. So how do you prepare differently, though? I mean, are you doing different strength workouts? Obviously, Pascal is is prescribing your workouts and whatnot. But what what kind of focus? I mean, are you running less or more miles? What does it look like? Uh, I pretty much – I would say that I – I train, um, I train the same as the rest of the guys in the group, uh, for, um, most of the year. Uh, so all fall when we start training back up all the way up until probably like right now, um, I've done the same workouts as every, everyone else in the group. And then once the spring track season comes around, that's when we start, um, I'll start incorporating steeple specific track workouts, uh, as opposed to like, um, like a 5k track workout. So, uh, I'll still run pretty much the same mileage as everyone else in the group. Uh, we'll do long runs together. We'll do speed workouts together. Um, and the only time we'll kind of split off is, uh, our our specific workout days where um, the steeplers will do a steeple workout, the 10k runners will do a 10k workout, the 5k runners will do a 5k workout, and that's when kind of the group really starts splintering off. And um, but yeah, like for the most part, uh, I'd I'd say like 95% of my training is is the same as everyone else's. Okay, so tell me the difference between a steeple work specific workout and a 5k workout? Um, 5k, I mean, you're, you're first, you're running different paces. So, um, so the, the 5k guys will typically work out at their, their goal 5k pace, which is like 62 or 63 seconds per lap. Their total volume of work within the workout will be a little bit more than what I will do mainly because their, their race is longer than mine. Um, and, um, the, the repeats themselves can, will most times be just slightly longer for the 5k workouts. So if, if for example, I'm doing, 800 repeats. This, this isn't like a workout that I typically do, but if I was to do 800 repeats, um, at my goal steeple pace over hurdles and a water jump, um, the 5k guys might do 1200 repeats at their goal pace, obviously without hurdles. (laughs) Uh, so they're running a little bit longer, a little bit faster, but I'm obviously, I have four hurdles and a water jump every lap. Yeah, I'd say the, the biggest difference is uh, you you just, you have to slow the pace down a little bit for the steeple and you do just a little bit less volume because, because the jumping is so taxing. So all of your specific uh, steeple workouts, though, you are incorporating the barriers? Yes. Yeah, okay. And then what about like strength stuff? Like what do you, do you do different strength stuff than, than they do? No, um, pretty much for the most part, we, we all do the same, the same strength routine. Um, I, I will incorporate 
um, like at this time of the year, uh, like steeple specific stretches and, um, we'll do some standing drills, uh, with, with hurdles, um, like typically after core. So like on a normal day, we would do a morning run, go do core. And then I would hang around for like another half an hour and do some steeple specific stretching. And then, um, it's, it's basically like hip mobility work over a, a hurdle, um, just to kind of get the motion of the trail leg over the hurdle um, so that it's just kind of second nature to to go over the hurdles in the race you're not actually thinking about it it's just kind of just kind of happens naturally okay so this year you've raced three times already uh yeah 2018 okay and was this the first you you competed in the USA cross country championships you placed fourth was this the uh-huh. first cross country race since like high school or I mean, I <laughs> yeah, think, since yeah. high school. What, yeah, what made you want to do uh, it? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't really my decision. Um, we, I had, I had a great fall and winter of training. I, I felt stronger than I had ever been at that time of the year. Um, and then we went up to altitude in Colorado Springs and, I had a couple of hiccups where training wasn't going so well and my body wasn't feeling great. And I, I think, um, Jerry had seen in some of the workouts that I just, uh, I was handling the, the longer strength work much better than the, the three K five K specific work. And I think something went on in his head that he was, he just, he came up to me and he said, you know, I've always wished that you could run a 10 K at this time of the year, instead of like forcing you into running the mile or the three K indoors, because I just, I don't feel comfortable on an indoor track. I think my like stride is too long or I'm too tall or something. I just, I never feel comfortable indoors. So he's like, I just wish that you could run like a 10 K and there's no 10 Ks at that time of the year. So he was like, what do you think about cross country? And I was like (laughs) so shocked because he had told me that multiple times, like pretty much every year I had talked to him about doing club cross with some of the other guys on the team. And he's like, no, you're retired from cross country. You're never running cross country again. So I had pretty much given up on the, the thought of ever running cross country again. And yeah, he brought it up to me like, I, I don't know, like 10 days before the race. And <laughs> I was just so shocked. So, um, yeah, def- it wasn't my decision. Um, but, uh, I was very happy to try something different and kind of challenge myself in, in a way that I, I had never done, like I've, I'd never run 10 K cross. So it was, it was definitely, it was fun. Yeah. I was going to say 10 K probably felt really long to you. It it did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it was weird. Like the first two, or the first five K it felt like a jog. <laughs> like it was like this, I was like, this is so easy. This is the <laughs> easiest thing I've ever done. And then the third lap, um, it started getting a little hard and then, uh, the, the fourth lap, my like glute just started like seizing up and I like had multiple thoughts of 
not being like I was like I'm not going to make it to the finish line. This is going to be so ugly. So yeah, it was definitely a new experience. It just kind of gradually gets harder and harder and harder until you feel like you can't move your legs anymore, which is actually honestly a little bit like the steeple, mm. um, just stretched out much longer. Yeah, honestly, the 10k that, that's like the scariest distance to me because it's like so fast but so long at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I mean I've never run a 10k on the track, but I imagine that you just you have to completely zone out and not even think about the fact that you're in a race until at least halfway through. So many laps. Yeah. So many laps. (laughs) So were you happy with fourth? Um, Uh, no, 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 I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't, it, it was a weird race for me because I had, I had spent all pretty much all winter and the altitude camp, mentally preparing for, for running indoor track and getting excited about trying to run some fast times. And then all of a sudden kind of things were, were switched on me and it was a little hard for me to, to get extremely motivated for that race because one, it, it felt like it wasn't completely in, in the plan, like the training plan the whole year. And it was just kind of switched at the last minute and also, I mean, I I didn't have anything to base my result off of. So I didn't know if fourth was going to be a good, if like fourth was good or if like 10th was going to be good. Or obviously I, I would have been very disappointed with 10th. But I think I, I wanted to do really well, but um, my body was just kind of in such a poor place going into that race that it was hard for me to do well, I guess. It was, I, I walked away from that race feeling very blah, like not like happy, not disappointed. It's just kind of, it was what it was. And I was, I was ready for, I was, I was ready to move on for sure. Well, after I asked that question, I was like, you just asked someone who has a silver medal in the Olympics, if they were happy with fourth place <laughs> in the yeah. cross country championships, what, are, yeah. what was the kind of question was that Lindsay? So you have a big race coming up though. Yes. The pre-classic. Tell me, yes, this, tell me about this it. This is big. Yeah. Um, so this is exciting. It's, uh, I think it's the, the first time in, in three years that the, the pre is going to have a steeple. So, uh, there's definitely, I'm definitely going to have some pride on the line there. Um, I, I don't get to run very many high profile steeples like this in the u.s so um i think i've i've only run two prefontaine classic steeples before so getting the chance to to run against the best in the world on home soil is Mm. uh it's definitely it's a very exciting race for me and i feel like training has gone pretty well for most of the year and I mean, this, this year is pretty much only about trying to run fast times and running for the win every single race. Uh, there's no major championship to uh, peak for, so it's just going out and competing uh, at a very high level every single time you step on the track. So it's, it's exciting for sure. Well, and isn't the, is, I'm going to say his name wrong. You know who I'm going to say, the Kenyan guy? Consessless. Yeah. 
He's going to be yeah. there, right? He's the gold medalist from Rio. He's going to be there. <laughs> he should be there. Yeah. Okay. He's the gold medalist from the last two championships, Rio and London last year, the world champs. The field's going to be competitive no matter what. But does knowing yeah. someone like that's going to be there, does that give you extra excitement to go kill it? Uh, yeah, for sure. We've we've had a nice little rivalry over the years. We both kind of came onto the steeple, the like international steepling scene um, at the same time. He he won World Juniors in 2012, and that was my my first year running the steeple. And we've gone back and forth between beating each other in in different years. He's he's had some good years. I've had some good years, and he's kind of he's had good years the last two years. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a nice little rivalry between the two of us and very cordial for sure. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely anytime you get to race the reigning Olympic champ, that's, it's a big deal for sure. Well, and being home, like being, you're going to be doing this at Hayward, Hayward track. And, I mean, it, it's just like with sports in general. I, we were just watching the Pacers and the Cavaliers, you know, like they were on a showdown for the, the national championship mm-hmm. or whatever. And I live in Indianapolis, so we're like Pacer people. But, okay. you know, like the last game being at the Cavs place, it's just like, I don't know, you're not home. You don't have your people there. It's just, yeah. it's so different competing elsewhere. So it's so exciting you're going to be I mean, everybody's going to be behind you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely um, it's an advantage for sure. You got uh, if you're an American competing at a very high level at at the pre classic, you're almost always going to have the entirety of the crowd behind you. So that's I mean, it, it helps for sure, as, especially if you're having a good day. So, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to it for sure. Are the girls racing steeple there too, Colleen and Courtney? Uh, there, there's no women's steeple chase okay. th- this year, unfortunately. Ah, oh, so dang I think, it! Um, yeah, I know. Uh, I think a couple of them might be running the 1500 instead. Okay. But I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. So I, I can't like uh, go back on what Pascal said about. You know, like, obviously you've been training for this medal, and but he kind of gave you that pep talk before Rio. Like, you can't, mm-hmm. you know, that can't define your race or whatever. But I have to ask, are you, I mean, are you going for gold in 2020? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's the goal. Um, I feel like as an athlete, you're always trying to improve. And, I mean, it's 2020 still feels like a very long way away for me. Um, it's kind of nice. I'm actually very excited about this year not having a, a global mm-hmm. championship mm-hmm. because it is a little it's it's less stressful and um, I think I'm gonna be able to have uh, be a little bit more relaxed and have a little bit more fun this year without the this one specific date uh, looming over my head um, trying to be a hundred and ten percent ready for this one day so um, it's it's nice I can just go out and uh, give everything I have like pretty much every time I step on the track and just have a little bit more fun with it knowing that there's not as much that that looms on this this year so uh, I'm gonna enjoy this year before I, <laughs> I really start 
dialing in and focusing on um, on a, a gold medal at, at a major championship. But uh, yeah, that is, I mean, I stepped away from the track in, in Rio um, and that was, that was one of my first thoughts was uh, hopefully if I stay healthy for another four years, I can, I can really go after that gold. So um, yeah, it's one of the long-term goals. I just keep thinking about what you said that he told you. And so how your mindset will be going into, oh. the, you know what I mean? Like those games, like yeah. obviously the gold medal will be the goal, but like with still yeah, keeping that gotcha. same healthy perspective. Yeah. So what, I, what I've realized is I, I think it's actually, it was actually beneficial for me to kind of carry that idea of meddling with me for the entire year, as long as I was able to completely let go of it, um, like leading up to the race. Cause I think it was a very healthy motivation for me, um, over the course of the year and doing this for almost 10 years now. Um, like, like motivation like that is, is so beneficial. So if I can go into a year and say, say I go into next year saying pretty much every single day in training, gold medal, gold medal, gold medal. And I really work hard for that. And I, I want it so badly. I think that will be good all the way up until the point of the race. So I don't think I would do anything different than I, than I did in 2016. Um, I'll still have that really deep desire to, to medal, but know at the same time that my best chance of meddling is to just be my best me on the day, basically. That's really good. And the older you get, the wiser you get, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm really excited about the pre-classic now because it's always so fun on this podcast when I get to talk to runners before the big races and then I get a watch on TV and I'm like, I just talked to mm, that person. This yeah. is so exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it should be fun. It's uh, it's always one of the best diamond leagues of the year. It's always like really great talent that's brought in, and um, a lot of the obviously all the the US US athletes um get super excited about it. But I know a lot of the international athletes um, they they take the pre classic very seriously as well. And they have a lot of pride with it. So, uh, it's, it usually brings out the best in a lot of different athletes. So before we get to the end of the podcast questions, I have to ask, um, what's so special. I mean, I know Pascal is special too, but what was so special about Jerry that made you follow him? And I mean, it just seems like you guys all have such a special relationship with him. And, you know, I asked Shelby when I interviewed her, if I, if she could hear anybody on my podcast, who would it be? And she said, Jerry, hmm. but he probably wouldn't yeah. do it. So what is it yeah. about Jerry? I think, I think what makes Jerry such a good coach is a little bit of why most of the athletes get uh, frustrated with him. Actually, <laughs> uh, it's he, he wants the best out of us every single day and he's going to, train us and uh, organize altitude camps and uh, schedule racing in a way that's going to bring out the absolute best in in every single athlete and he just he just expects 
100% perfection every single day. And that can be hard at times, but I think that also brings out the best of you. Because if your coach says, I only want you to bring 110% on workout days and do whatever you want on the days off, you're going to definitely slip on those days off and you're probably going to bring your just overall view of training is going to be less professional, I guess, than someone that's giving it 100% every single day. And yeah, I guess when he expects so much out of you, there's there's very little room for uh, for slipping. And he notices it when it's happening and, and he'll get on your case about it. And um, I mean, sometimes you just want to <laughs> take a weekend off and enjoy nice weather with your family or your spouse or your friends. And if if he knows about it, he's like, why aren't you training right now? Why aren't you taking a nap? It's it's like 100 percent all in all the time. And um, yeah, like like part of you wants to just relax a little bit sometimes but um it's it's so good having just that extra little push to make sure you're you're getting the best out of yourself and also like i said earlier at the beginning of of the interview like it's jerry has this way of um especially um when you first get to know him as a coach he has this way of getting you extremely excited to to be the best you and I think kind of for me personally wanting to be my best is is such like a huge motivation and it makes it makes the hard days more fun and it makes it just makes the the daily training uh so much easier yeah and he he just creates a, a great uh environment for the team yeah, that's a huge that's huge for a coach. I mean, like all the technical stuff, great, but like I love what you said about him uh making you want to be the best that you can be because really you can want to be the best you want to be, but if you're not having like an outside influence motivating you and pushing you to do that, you're probably going to like yeah. give up a little bit at some point. And it and it also just even if you have it your yourself it and you have your coach feeling the same way it reinforces that belief so that there's there's little doubt for uh, insecurities or whether or not you can actually get there if you if you believe it first and then you have someone else telling you the same thing it's just gonna increase your beliefs tenfold totally okay well you mentioned hanging out with your spouse i'm gonna call you a newlywed because i've been married for 10 years so (laughs) you you've kind of sort of recently got married how'd you meet your wife uh i actually met her at a track meet both of us so she she was a um a sprinter uh she's from sweden and we were both competing at the junior world championships in poland in 2008 and uh, team USA, Team Sweden, and I think Team Jamaica and maybe Team Poland were we were all staying in the same hotel um, in this town in Poland, and uh, she just happened to be staying um, in the the hotel room just down the hall from me, 
And so me and my roommate, Duncan Phillips, um, we ended up hanging out with her and uh, her her teammates and her roommates uh, for like the entire week that we were there and just kind of both had a thing for each other and kind of hung out that whole week and then like became Facebook friends and um, kind of kept in touch, very loose touch over the, the next like four years. But um, in 2012, she actually wrote me on Facebook and she's like, Hey, like I've, seen how uh how good of a season you've been having um so happy that someone from the 2008 world championships like made it to the olympics it's so cool glad to see you're doing so well and uh at that same time like before she had written me i was thinking about writing her on facebook because i had i was planning on racing um, the diamond league in Stockholm that year. And, and I was, so I wrote it back. I was like, Oh, funny. You should write me. Like I was actually going to ask you if you happen to be in Stockholm on this date, like I'm going to be racing here. And she's like, yeah, totally. Like I'm going to be helping the meet actually. My mom helps put it on. And I was like, no way. So we ended up, um, meeting up for coffee. Um, one of two, to the days that I was there before the meet and just kind of hit things off again and um, started, we exchanged phone numbers and started talking every day and started visiting each other. She was going to school in Mississippi and obviously I was living in Portland. So I went out to visit her one time. She came out to visit me and then we were still talking like a year later and, um, and then uh, she visited me in St. Moritz um, the following summer. And I was like, okay, if she's like, if she's ready to come to Switzerland to, <laughs> to hang out with me for a couple of days, like this is getting pretty serious. So I was like, uh, like, I know we don't live anywhere near each other, but do you want to start dating? And yeah, so just kind of started that way. And then she moved out to Portland and, obviously things were great. So I proposed. So do you, she lives in Portland now? Yeah. Okay. So, but you said you had a roommate, but do you live with your wife? Um, yeah, I live, I don't have a, Oh yeah. I have a roommate now. I'm in uh, mammoth lakes, California. Okay. okay. So, um, at, while we're at altitude, I, okay. I have a roommate we're up while we're up here. So is that difficult? I mean, so and what does your wife do in Portland? Uh, she's on the marketing team at a construction company downtown in Portland. So she, she helps like win projects for the company basically. And her name's Emily. Uh, Sophia. Sophia. Yeah. Is, is her Instagram have the name Emily in it or something? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Emma Sophia. Okay. Okay. I'm not yeah. making this up. I, I, <laughs> I did my due diligence stalking your Instagram. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't uh, make okay. that up. <laughs> no. Do you guys, do you think you guys will ever move to Sweden? Um, I, I think there's definitely a possibility. Um, she, she really misses home and, uh, I, I miss home as well, but, um, yeah, it's, it's different. Like I've lived in the U S my whole life and she's living in a completely different country, different part of the world from her family. So I could see us moving, moving to Sweden at some point. 
Yeah. Okay. So what's one thing professionally or personally that you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? Break eight in the steeplechase, <laughs> like we've talked about. It's um, going to happen. When do you think I, that, when, when will that opportunity arise? Um, hopefully this year. Pre-classic? Uh, that, that'll be a little tough. Yeah. Um, yeah, the pre-classic hasn't gone under eight too many times. I think it's, it, it, it would be tough. Um, if we'll see what's, what, if the race is there, but I don't like to, I don't want to put anything out there and put too much extra pressure on myself. I, I'm, I just want to say that I'm going to be going for it pretty much every race this year. And, um, the race is the day is just kind of have to be a good day for it to happen. I think, um, I don't think you can force it to happen. If you had one message to send to the world, what would it be? Um, just be nice to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Everyone should just be nice to everyone and the world would be an awesome place. Don't be a jerk. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, do you read books? What's the best, most recent book you've read? So I, I just finished a book a couple weeks ago, or I guess right before I came here. So a week ago, uh, science fiction is called Artemis. It's written by Andy Weir, who is the author of the Martian. Um, and the Martian was made into like a -hmm. movie with Matt Damon a year or two ago. Um, so it's, it's another like space fiction novel, um, that takes place on the moon with, uh, like, a a new city uh, is established on the moon. And so there's some crazy things that happen uh, out there. And uh, I just love the, the science aspect of it. Um, He does a a really good job of kind of doing his, like his background work and kind of knowing exactly how like the vacuum of space would, would affect things. So he gets kind of sciencey in it and it's, it's just super interesting. Do you, in all of your, like, uh, you know, relaxing and resting that you have to do <laughs> to, <laughs> to keep up with the physical demands of your job, um, yeah. do you watch any, like, good or bad TV? Um, yeah. So when we usually, uh, when we all, all the guys, we get together and we're living together at altitude camps, we typically try to, to watch a show together just to, like, have something to discuss pretty much every day and have something to look forward to. So, uh, we've watched, watched so many shows, um, really into game of Thrones, obviously, and, um, Westworld. And I, I guess I like a lot of the HBO shows cause they've got like really good production value and maybe a little bit, a little darker. So they're a little more intriguing. Uh, watched Parks and Rec with my wife, obviously breezed through Breaking Bad. That's one of my favorites. Um, Mad Men was great. Um, and so right now me and the guys that are up here are watching, um, the show that we just found on Netflix. It's called Lost in Space. Um, so it's a little different than what I I guess I'm used to watching because I feel like it's slightly tailored to like a younger crowd um so it's a little more a little more pg than i guess i'm used (laughs) to but it's it's still good and it still gives us um a decent amount to kind of talk about and um hypothesize as to what's going to happen i miss mad men yeah mad men was great it was so good oh yeah 
Well, Evan, th- I, we went like so over, so I'm, I'm Did so we? sorry. Yeah, and I'm, well, I'm just like, are you trying to get a second run in? Like, are you trying <laughs> to eat dinner now? I don't know, but no. I'm sorry it was so long. No, no, it's totally fine. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Good luck at the pre-classic. Thank you. Cannot wait to cheer for you. And thank um, you. Thank, just thank you so much for your time. Yeah, of course. Okay, have a great day. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening today. Thank you, Evan, for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. Loved learning a little bit more about steeplechase and hearing about your career. Very excited to cheer you on. You guys can find Evan on social media. On Instagram, he is Evan Jager, E-V-A-N-J-A-G-E-R. And you can also find him on Twitter. Same name, Evan Jager. You guys can find me on Instagram, lindsayhine626. You can find me on Twitter, lindsayhine. You can find me on Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine. But you got to join the Facebook group, you guys, because that's where all the fun is at. Link to join the group will be in the show notes at lindsayhine.com. You can also just search it on Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine group. We read books together. We talk about training. There's actually a group right now coordinating a relay race team together. You got to get in on this group. It's a lot of fun. Thank you, Prep Dish, for sponsoring this episode. Go to prepdish.com slash another and use the code another to get a free two-week trial. And thank you, Lily Trotters, for supporting the podcast. Go to lilytrotters.com and use the code another for 25% off your order. That is a big, big discount. You guys, thank you so much for listening. You're the best. If you're loving the show, I would love it if you would share it with a friend, with your running group, whoever you know that might be interested in listening to podcasts. I would love it if you would help me spread the word. You can do that by taking a screenshot of the episode, tweeting it out, throwing it up on your Instagram story. Make sure you tag me if you do that. And most importantly, thank you for listening and being a part of this community. I appreciate each and every one of you guys. Have a great Friday. Have a wonderful weekend. And as always, I will see you next Friday.